This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. And welcome to Connected to Chicago. It seems like crime has been on the rise in the city, and there has been a lot of finger-pointing between the mayor, the top cop, and the state's attorney. Well, all sides came together for a joint press conference after the shooting death of 8-year-old Melissa Ortega. She was murdered in the Little Village neighborhood. The trigger, police say, was pulled by a 16-year-old. The question now is whether this means that officials have found some common ground in the fight against crime. And because it's an important issue, we bring you a portion of the remarks made Wednesday. We are here today to announce charges in the murder of 8-year-old Melissa Ortega, who was gunned down in the middle of the afternoon holding her mother's hand. Our city has been shaken, and no one can make sense of this tragedy. This morning, I spoke with Melissa's mother in her home, not only to check in on her during this especially tough time, but to also let her know that we found the offenders responsible for taking Melissa's life, and they have been charged. The shooter, a juvenile, 16 years old, has been charged with one felony count of first-degree murder, one felony count of attempted first-degree murder, and two felony counts of aggravated discharge of a firearm in an occupied vehicle. Driver, Javier Guzman, 27, was also arrested and charged. He is facing one felony count of first-degree murder and one felony count of attempted first-degree murder. In addition, Javier is also charged with one felony count of aggravated UUW. I'm going to recount the sequence of events, and I'll try to pause because it's quite a complex case. On Saturday, January 22nd, officers responded to a shot spotter alert call at 2.56 p.m. Our investigation determined that three purported gang members were standing on the corner of 26th and Kaminsky. Moments later, an individual emerged south of their location near an alley and fired a handgun at them. That's when Melissa uh, and her mother were crossing the street and shot in the head. Melissa shot in the head. A 29-year-old male, the intended target of the gunman, was also struck in the back as he attempted to run from the gunfire. Detectives subsequently identified and tracked the vehicle used in the shooting using pod video cameras and private surveillance video as well as license plate reader technology. The investigation further revealed this vehicle, the same vehicle, pulled into a nearby alley before the shooting. So we tracked video pre and post shooting and we, re we saw that this car the same car pulled into the alley before the shooting. Video shows a passenger exited the vehicle, fired shots at the victims that we mentioned on 26th and Comiskey, got back in the vehicle and fled the scene. During the shooting, another vehicle parked near the scene was hit several times by this gunfire. A man and his nine-year-old daughter who were inside this vehicle narrowly escaped harm. We recovered the offender's vehicle on Monday, this past Monday, January 24th, and identified the driver of the vehicle. We also seized 
uh, the handgun that was also inside this vehicle that we recovered on Monday. And uh, the gun matched as well as the casings and the fired bullets at the scene. Additional investigations led to identification of a shooter who was arrested on yesterday. I can't say enough about our officers and detectives on the scene working around the clock relentlessly to be able to bring these offenders to justice, justice, or the hard work of our area technology centers, our ATC rooms, and all of the officers who work there. In addition, our home homicide investigation specialty team worked around the clock as well. And I also want to mention the district patrol officers in the 10th district who worked with all the homicide detectives and with the community uh, to ensure uh, we brought these people to justice. And I also want to really emphasize this point, uh, the role of the community, the way they stepped up and came together and helped us solve this case. Many people came forward with uh, witness testimony about what they saw, who they saw, all the vehicles involved, when it happened, where it happened, and offered up uh, availability to our detectives. Building trust through positive community interactions is a worthwhile endeavor. Melissa was a precious little girl, and it is unacceptable that she is the latest Chicagoan to fall victim to senseless, senseless gang violence. As a city, we mourn. We mourn her loss because no child should know violence, and no parent should have to endure something like this. We will forever remember Melissa and that she loved to dance. She was a light to her family. And we speak her name because she represented the innocence and potential of every child in Chicago. And what happened to Melissa shouldn't happen to anyone anywhere. We have to do more in our communities to reach our young people. We do. And that's all of us and apply even more pressure to get rid of gangs and guns. And we will not tolerate this and we hold and we will hold all of these offenders accountable to the fullest extent of the law. I want to again acknowledge the dedicated officers and detectives working in this case from day one and the community support and collaboration that helped us get swift justice for the Ortega family. Chicago Police Department can only hope these arrests bring some small measure of closure to the Ortega family and the little village community during this very, very difficult time of bereavement. Good afternoon, everyone, and, and thank you uh, for being here. A lot of powerful statements uh, this afternoon. I want to first thank um, the Chicago Police Department. Superintendent David Brown, Chief of Detectives Brendan uh, Dinahan, um, and in particular the hard-working, selfless men and women of the detective division and the patrolmen that supported them who worked tirelessly, literally round the clock, to bring us to this moment, um, identify and apprehend, and with the help of the state's attorney to charge the individuals who were responsible for taking the life of young Melissa Ortega. These folks, as I said, have been working tirelessly around the clock to solve this case and bring those responsible to justice. We also have to give thanks to the state's attorney's office, um, the assistant state's attorneys who worked hand in glove 
with um, our officers and detectives who helped guide this investigation um, from its outset um, and who uh, pushed us uh, to make sure that we had very airtight cases so charges could be brought um, against these individuals. And again, thank you, State's Attorney uh, Fox and the team uh, for all of their hard work as well. I also have to thank um, Pastor Matt and New Life, who has been an incredible champion for the vulnerable and for the dead and dying in Little Village. I have to thank the entirety of the Little Village community who once again rose to the occasion to wrap their arms <clears throat> around this grieving family as they continue to do so, um, but also to provide important leads and support. I have to thank the two aldermen, Alderman Rodriguez and Alderman Cardenas, um, who I know themselves went door to door, talking to folks, helping them overcome their fear, looking for a video that might be helpful. So thank you always for your work on behalf of the residents of your wards. Ladies and gentlemen, we've lost too many children to violence in Chicago. Too many. This tragedy sitting on top of so many others has scarred and broken the heart of our city. Imagine coming to Chicago to make a better life for your family and then losing your child, literally as you were walking down the street hand in hand, thinking about a lighter moment and having that child disappear in a hail of gunfire. As a mother myself, it's hard for me to imagine the pain that Araceli feels that will haunt her, no doubt, for the rest of her days. No one, no one should have to endure this kind of pain. And we again express our sincere condolences half of a city that's broken by this tragedy to Melissa's family. Well, nothing can bring back her life, taken far too soon. I hope that the fact that we are standing here today, this department and the state's attorney announcing charges will bring some measure of solace to this aching community. I hope it sends a message to those who wish to cause harm and fear and tear apart our city and act with regard, with no regard for the sanctity of any life, that we will hold you accountable and we will do everything in our power to make that happen. I mourn for the people of Villa Village. I've spoken to too many mothers in that community who told me that they're afraid <clears throat> afraid to simply step outside of their homes and live their lives. Afraid because they believe that the gangs have taken over. Spoken as so many young people, as recently as this week in Little Village, who walk past murals, the names of those lost by gun ballots, and that becomes their norm. <clears throat> what they've told me is that they need more support be able to live their lives in freedom and without fear, and to be able to grasp the opportunities that are there and fulfill their God-given potential. 
Little Village is a rich and vibrant community that has seen too much heartbreak. Far too many children living in the shadows of gun violence, too many elders who are also living in fear. It's our obligation, neighbors, and my obligation as mayor, to work with the stakeholders and leaders of Little Village to bring peace there once and for all. This isn't a problem that just arose on Saturday. It's not a problem that just arose this year or even last. It's been a problem of long standing, and it's way past time that we unite, that we come together, and we bring peace to this beautiful, vibrant community of Little Village. We have to provide every possible support and resource that amplifies the strength and vibrancy of this community. After all, this is a, it has the second largest commercial district in our city. But all that gets dwarfed if people are afraid. Been afraid for many reasons, and most recently because of violence. We have to disrupt the lore of street gangs who are preying upon the young children of this community and others across our city with promises of things that can never be delivered and if they are only short term and they evaporate so quickly. I agree with the statements of the aldermen. Anyone who gives a gun to a young person and puts it in their hands, knowing that this young child is too immature and impulsive to be able to control themselves, we got to do something about that and prevent that from happening. The kind of opportunities that Melissa Mom sought should be available to everyone. She shouldn't be leaving this country thinking that she made a terrible mistake by bringing her child here. So, we have a challenge. All of us, everyone. We must step up and meet that challenge. The words of Araceli hang over this room. It's hard not to break down and weep, listening to the pain of this mother who now has to endure this tragedy, who is going to be sitting in a funeral later today and later burying her child. Way too early, way too soon. But I do have hope, and I'll tell you why. I have hope because of the people and the strength and resiliency of the people of Little Village. I've seen them rally time and time again. This is not the only time. I have hope because there are people there who love their community and love their city. And I have hope because I know that we can rise to this challenge. We have let the people of that community down, but we let ourselves down as well. So. Superintendent and I and the leadership of this department just talked yesterday about what we must do to make sure that we bring peace to this community. We're committed. I know the state's attorney is committed and her assistance. I know the people of this community are committed. We need an army of the willing to turn around the tide of violence in our city. I want to thank again Pastor Matt and the team of violence interrupters and interveners 
I want to thank those on my staff who also rallied immediately to make sure that we were activating the entirety of city government to come to the aid of this family and this community in time of need. I want to thank um, the others who rallied to support uh, this family. That is what we need to turn this tide around from violence. The tragedy of 2021, I think, were a moment of reflection for all of us. And we do talk and work together on a regular basis. Um, and I think, as the state's attorney said, um, this is an opportunity for us to demonstrate how we work behind the scenes publicly. And certainly this tragedy of the taking of the life of this young girl um, has pricked the consciousness of all of us. But really the tragedy of, of 2021 with so many um, shootings and so many homicides. You know, we, we get asked all the time, what's going to be different about this year? Um, and I think, as the superintendent just said, we are seeing communities rise up and really put, let their faith overcome their fear. Um, we would not be standing here today if the community hadn't come forward and said we're not going to tolerate this kind of um, horrific murder in our community. We are going to rally together and do everything we can to support bringing those responsible for justice. And what would we be like if we didn't match their passion and their enthusiasm? So I think you'll see um, more opportunities for us to demonstrate uh, a unity of purpose. Um, we're not going to agree on every issue, um, but we do agree that violence has to be addressed in a holistic way and that we've got to do everything that we can to make sure that we hold those who are responsible accountable. And it starts with bringing them together and getting them charged. And again, I want to thank the state's attorney and her team uh, for their support um, and for their tireless work. We all have the same mission, which is to keep our community safe. And a replay of a rare gathering of officials. And it appears that Melissa Ortega's murder definitely galvanized the superintendent, mayor, and state's attorney to show the public they are committed to fighting crime. But will it produce results? Coming up, the Reporter Roundtable. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on 890 WLS. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. And it's time for the Reporter Roundtable, where we welcome in Heather Sharon of WTTW Chicago Tonight, Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune, and Greg Hines of Crane's Chicago Business. Welcome, everyone. And let's get started talking about um, this New York Times piece out, kind of uh, analyzing Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the problems for her keep adding up, uh, particularly when it comes to trying to quell violence in the city. Your takeaway from that, uh, Greg? Um, it was a decent piece, but uh, but uh, for those of us who follow this, I didn't I didn't learn a lot from it. Um, it portrays Lori Lori Lightfoot uh, uh, quite accurately as uh, as someone uh, who uh, has uh, strong views on on, on things, uh, uh, who uh, likes to pop off on occasion, and who has a, as a, as the piece put it, a unique unique ability to make political enemies, all of which is true. Um, I did think that their comparison with uh, with former Mayor Jane Byrne was was uh, a, a bit cheap. Uh, uh, we we all uh, remember Jane Byrne, but uh, uh, Lightfoot has a has a clear idea and clear policy things that she wants to do. Whereas whereas Miss Byrne was uh, much more uh, ad hoc and off off the cuff. So there's clear policy things like social equity and and uh, low income housing, whatever that uh, that Lightfoot has and has stuck with. Uh, but uh, where the 
where the pace is right is it talks about crime, which was just all, golly gee, all over the news this week. Arnie Duncan is talking about running against the Lightfoot one after her management of the police department. Tim Evans, the chief judge, had a uh, came out of uh, and had a an unusual, rare uh, public appearance where he's tried to explain why uh, and why uh, people who uh, uh, are, have been arrested uh, are, are and released end up doing bad things again. Um, uh, there's no question that uh, that although the mayoral field is far from set and maybe nobody of consequence will run in the end, that it's a real huge potential liability for this mayor. I thought they were just, you know, I thought it was a fairly accurate piece. I also agree with Greg about the Jane Byrne comparison, not quite on point. Uh, but uh, they're, like I said, they're they're flying at 20,000 feet. If you wanted to get a quick rundown of where Lori Lightfoot is right now, you can catch that uh, from this piece, but you can't catch all of the internal fights or the the ferocity that uh, goes into some of the uh, the uh, fights that she gets into, uh, they attempted to do that with the uh, the kind of uh, beginning of the story where they talked about uh, Lori Lightfoot uh, saying that uh, she uh, didn't think the Chicago Teachers Union was listening to her when they were negotiating about the whole issue of the pandemic and kids, but. Um, you don't have the feel that that uh, Chicagoans have of this constant uh, uh, fight or turmoil or uh, having to go from scene to scene, from uh, kid being shot to person being hijacked to crisis this and crisis that and pandemic at all. So um, it was it was a solid piece for an out of town paper. Sometimes they can miss the mark. Uh, by just parachuting in, that's the advantage they have of having somebody in the bureau in Chicago. Yeah, I would just add that I think it's interesting because we know that this mayor is someone who is very concerned or at least focused on how she is perceived on the national stage. She made a point of, you know, recovering as quickly as possible from COVID-19 um, this month and heading to Washington, D.C. to participate in the U.S. Conference of Mayors. So I think this story is most interesting read as a window into what that national media strategy is really getting Lori Lightfoot. And I think from that perspective, it's very interesting that it focuses on what it calls her, quote, uncanny ability to make political enemies, end quote. And I thought that was striking um, in that um, there's a significant amount of evidence for it. She's at war with the Chicago Teachers Union. She's at war with the Chicago Police Department's um, rank and file union. She's at war with, you know, progressives on the city council. You know, I could go on and on and on, including being at war with Chief Judge Tim Evans, who called yesterday for collaboration and for people to work together. And uh, she rejected that almost entirely. And I think I agree with Greg that I think it's almost too easy to compare Chicago's second female mayor with its first female mayor. But I would say that those sort of national media sort of images or snapshots can be can stick and can be damaging in a specific way, especially if you spend a significant amount of time cultivating those national reporters, um, as we know Mayor Lightfoot has done. Can I ask you guys all this question, though, just because I'm curious, unless she has like higher political aspirations, 
does it really matter at the end of the day when it comes down to the mayoral race what or how she's perceived in the in the national press? Uh, yeah, I think maybe it does, Nick. Uh, um, uh, I wrote, I did a piece uh, several months ago about the mayor's fascination with giving uh, exclusive interviews to uh, uh, CNBC, uh, to MSNBC and, and right, CNN, right. uh, and, and ignoring uh, the Tribune and the Sun Times and, and Cranes and uh, WTTW, where she appears uh, in exclusive interviews rarely, if if, if at all. And uh, someone who advises her said that that's that's intentional. It's not only that the mayor wants to reach those people; it's that uh, in this bifurcated, fragmented uh, media environment we have, that a lot of the mayor's progressive base tend to rely more on national media than they do on local media. And there may be some truth to that. So it may not be. Is I suspect she likes. She likes to star thump, as it were, uh, but uh, and and play with the big boys and girls. But but uh, there may be some political logic as well. Yeah, I think that she's going to get a message to her base, and it's not going to be uh, hit as hard by the reporters on the national stage as the local reporters um, when she's going to MSNBC, for example, which. Uh, welcomes uh, progressive ideas and thoughts. Um, and so a lot of the folks who are her base uh, are going to be watching those sh- shows like M- MSNBC, et cetera. So let's talk real yeah. quick about uh, Chief uh, Judge uh, Timothy Evans and uh, the takeaway from uh, his kind of rare appearance uh, this week talking about uh, crime. Heather, what... What's the excuse? <laughs> I guess why why do we have uh, the turnover rate that we do? Well, I think there are. It's a really complicated issue, and Tim Evans spends a not small amount of time trying to, you know, parse that difference between the need to respect people's constitutional rights to not be held without bail unless they present a danger to society or if there's evidence that they will not appear for trial. And he made a a somewhat impassioned plea to respect people's constitutional rights and warned that if those rights are abrogated, society will collapse. At the same time, he acknowledged that that crime is a huge, huge problem in Chicago and that people live in fear. And he tried very carefully to say uh, a crime is uh, something that has multiple causes and potentially multiple solutions. And he he tried to sort of extend an olive branch. He did not um, escalate the war of words with Mayor Lightfoot, although he did say it was damaging that her remarks on this issue have been um, at best misleading and at worst outright false in terms of the number of people who've been released on electronic monitoring after being charged with murder or attempted murder. So the two sides are are at an impasse, and it has real-world implications for the people who live and work in Chicago. And it was clear that he felt the need to sort of at least try to raise the curtain a little bit on what's going on at the county criminal courts. I'm not sure that he really sort of, you know, is going to move the needle on this because, you know, it happened at the same time as a Cook County judge was holding a 16-year-old who's been charged with first-degree murder in connection with the slaying of 8-year-old Melissa Ortega in Little Village in broad daylight. Now, we now know that that 
16-year-old had been arrested three times for aggravated vehicular hijacking. And there are lots of questions about why he was allowed to plead guilty and be sentenced to probation. But, you know, again, he, Tim Evans delivered a, a somewhat impassioned plea to say, we don't, we don't give up on kids. We don't, you know, lock them up and throw away the keys. Um, there are no easy solutions, and I think it will have real ramifications, not just for Chicago, but also the political future for people like Tim Evans, who, of course, is very close to Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, and, of course, Mayor Lightfoot. Yeah, I think Heather hit the hit, hit the nail on the head there. Um, it was striking that the that the judge first he came he did this. Uh, this is a man who rarely rarely talks in public, and the fact that he did and he was at great pains to say that I feel your pain, Chicago. Uh, I understand people are scared, and uh, here's all the people that we've we've convicted and locked up, and I I hear you that things are bad. That was striking. <coughs> But equally striking is this kind of dilemma he's in, and the, 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 the tale of the 16-year-old is, is very telling. Um, uh, this is a kid. Uh, Tim Evans argued at, at some length that well, these are children; um, they're young people. Uh, they deserve. Are we, we're going to write off somebody because they make a mistake. Don't they deserve a second chance? Maybe even a third chance. Uh, well, in the case of this kid, though, uh, he's on at least his fourth chance. Uh, he was arrested uh, three times of, of aggregated vehicular homicide, uh, vehicular uh, carjacking, yeah, uh, which, may, which, may, which means that he didn't just say, get out of your car, please, ma'am, but something pretty nasty happened. Um, uh, he was released on electronic monitors uh, in at least a couple of those cases. Uh, uh, and then when uh, when this all came to court, uh, he, he was convicted on one count, the other two were dropped, and he was sentenced to probation. Well, what did, what did the message this kid get? Uh, apparently, it wasn't that. Gee, uh, uh, I've been caught and I better shape up or something's going to happen. What does he do? He gets in a he, in the in the middle of broad daylight. He starts shooting at a gangbanger. Apparently, doesn't care if the police are telling the truth here, the prosecutors are telling the truth. Doesn't care that this little girl got hit, and goes out with a buddy in a car to uh, to have lunch. Um, so my point is that yes, uh, on one side of the scale is the damage that, that, that taking away a life uh, in future projects for a, for, a, for a young person causes. On the other hand, is when you give them second, third, and fourth chances, how much damage do they cause in the meantime, and does it over does it override the damage to that individual? Uh, uh, by incarcerating them. That's the real dilemma here. And uh, until we solve it, we're going to continue to have problems. You know, this is the old uh, tough on crime versus give the kids a chance argument. And Cook County has been swinging toward give the kids an argument, and the state of Illinois has been swinging that way. And the question now is whether the pendulum is has swung too far. When you see uh, pictures of like eight-year-old Melissa Ortega on the news as somebody, you know, smiling in pictures when she was a happy child all alive, it just really breaks your heart. And when you see that folks like um, the uh, defendant in this case uh, has been out on not just, you know, crimes of of uh, no where there 
where victims are not hurt or something like that or not. Yeah, he didn't swipe a pair of shoes at a store or something. Yeah, yeah, it's not shoplifting. This is carjacking here. So this is like one step away from something major and and really major as opposed to carjacking being major in itself. So you have to wonder how many chances you can give someone and whether the revolving door at the jail is just going too fast. And I think Lynn uh, Sweet, uh, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times, has jumped on, and so we'll start with yeah. her on this. Hello. Hi, Lynn. Uh, Arnie Duncan, looks like he's making a run for mayor, and my question to you is, former CPS CEO, education secretary under former President Barack Obama, does that give him the pedigree to make a run for mayor? Yes and no. What it does is give him entree into an extensive national fundraising network that will be a big running start if he makes a run for mayor. Uh, it gives him – he has an experienced uh, team that he could pull together because he knows what it will uh, take. Uh, that's the plus, and don't underestimate a fundraising plus on it. Uh, the minus is he'll have to answer to his record – as CPS chief and his record, if whatever you think of it, when he was at the education department. And you would then factor in that when he was the education secretary and when Obama was president, they tried and failed uh, to see if they could put in programs that could stem the gun violence in Chicago. And sad to say, they couldn't, you know, after years in office, they couldn't figure out anything to do that could permanently take away the sad, chronic problem of gun violence, particularly among youths here. The plus is that since Arne Duncan left the White House and when he came, he came back to Chicago, he's committed to working with at-risk uh, black men and black youths. And that's what he's been devoting himself to in very specific programs to help change the lives of people in Chicago. And that is something we could talk about. Does he have an edge now, uh, folks, over anybody well, else? He's, uh, he's, he, he's certainly well-known. Lynn is absolutely correct that he can raise a lot of money. <laughs> um, uh, and he, no, there's no question he waded right into this crime issue this week. Um, now, there are some things in his, in his past that might give you a little pause. He has appeared to suggest, uh, for instance, that, uh, that uh, uh, Chicago Police Department ought to lose some officers, uh, and they want to take that money and use it to hire uh, crisis intervention people and whatever, that we have too many uniformed people. And that is not what Chicago wants to hear right now, uh, I don't think. Uh, and he seemed to back off that a little bit. Uh, uh, he, uh, at the same time, he went after uh, Mayor Light for, for her management uh, of the department uh, and the crime situation. Uh, he talked at, at at great length about how uh, local neighborhood districts, which is you know you have you have a problem, uh, you hear somebody at the door who shouldn't be there, you call it, you call nine one one, they send out somebody from the local station. They have been they're way down in, in, in personnel, twenty thirty percent, both because because Chicago Police Department are retiring, they're going to other locales, they don't want to work here anymore, or because hundreds of officers, almost a thousand, have been uh, put in these citywide units uh, under uh, Superintendent Brown that, that are of, of questionable. Uh, use in, in certain situations. He went after that pretty big. I suspect that that argument that hey, uh, the mayor's 
took people away from your local police station, I'm going to fix that. I suspect that we'll have a lot of salience with voters. Well, we can talk about Jonathan Jackson next here as he enters the race uh, to replace Bobby Rush. Uh, Lynn, we could start with you again. Is Jonathan Jackson, does he have the pedigree uh, to be a congressman? And is he now the front runner because of his last name? Uh, so uh, I talked to Jonathan, and maybe my colleagues did too. He's not in yet 100%. What he did was he filed a candidate's declaration with the Federal Election Commission. Okay. Uh, he's really in an exploratory phase, phase to see how it goes with fundraising and taking, you know, assessing what the deal is. He's not an immediate front runner because he's starting with no money. And yes, he's starting with some name recognition. And at this point, I think it comes with a plus and a minus, because let's remember that Jesse Jackson Jr. was a congressman who was very promising. And he just had a uh, he went to prison for looting with his then wife, Sandy, a Chicago alderman, $750,000 from his campaign fund for just expensive junk. Okay, just greedy, expensive junk. And they went to prison. Now, not to say that the brother's sins should be visited on everyone else in the family, but I don't think this means this automatically gives Jonathan a running start because the Jackson family, uh, you know, has, yeah, the facts are the facts. Uh, Jesse didn't work out. Now, Jonathan has a record of his own, but here's why I, I would put him in the top two, three right now, and, and every time I look, there's more people signing up to run. It is exactly what you say, because he has name recognition, he has worked in campaigns and causes, he has uh, carved out his own path, and that's a plus. And he is pretty knowledgeable in, 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 I think, how government and politics works, and he will get some good, you know, some knowledgeable people to help him run his campaign. <clears throat> It certainly doesn't hurt to have advisors like his father, Reverend Jesse Jackson, there, too. No matter the fact that he is slowing down, he's still out and about, and he still is going to have some um, some ideas, and he's still got the connections from his own uh, efforts in, in political campaigns over the years, including twice running for president. Now, the other thing I want to point out is is that why I don't make him the instant front runner. Uh, Jonathan doesn't have an instant political network. On Friday morning, Alderman Pat Dow released a slew of uh, endorsements from local officials, aldermen, and they re-underscored that uh, former Senator Caramosi Braun is backing her. So you have uh, Congressman Reverend Bobby Rush with a uh, Karen Norrington Reeves, who uh, runs a county city jobs agencies, but isn't well known. So she's got uh, Bobby Rush behind her. Jonathan will have his dad, Jesse. Uh, Pat Dow has a bunch of local officials and Carol Mosey Braun. So I would put those three now in the top tier, uh, if nothing else, just by who, who, who they're being helped by. But there's a lot of other people. You only need a plurality to win. So the nominee in June could be created by, you know, what, guys, 20, 21% of the vote? Yeah, and I think uh, one thing that helps will help. Um, you mentioned Pat Dell having all these local officials. If you have a bunch of those local officials who are also committeemen and have their own organizations, that helps you in your ground game, too. And this is going to be Absolutely. a, a, a uh, uh, campaign that really depends a lot on the ground game. 
And we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times, Heather Sharona, WTTW Chicago Tonight, Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune, and Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business. Up next, Lauren Cohn. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. I'm Warren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. Homelessness is a growing problem in Chicago, and one local pastor is on a mission to spread some love to those in need just in time for Valentine's Day. Pastor Cornelius Parks of Good Hope Free Will Church on the West Side joins me now. Thanks for being here. It's an awesome experience to be here, to be able to share what we're doing in the city of Chicago on the West Side. Tell me about Love Day. What is it? Okay, so Love Day, uh, we're doing it on February the 14th, which is Valentine's Day. Awesome opportunity to share love with those persons that are experiencing homelessness and even the community at large. Uh, we've been doing Love Day for many years. I just recently, in September of 2021, uh, switched to the west side of Chicago. And the great part about the uh, the movement is we right around the corner from a major shelter that's on the west side. And so now it gives us a pivotal opportunity to share and do what we would like to do in a uh, stationary location to uh, service them on this great day. So that's nice. They can all stay and be brought together. Um, how is the pandemic affecting the work that you're trying to do, especially if um, they're all in one area? So, number one, the pandemic is really um, causing a lot of uh, frustration, number one. And then, two, uh, we're not doing, not able to do the outreach, outreach like we normally would do in the capacity because we limit it with numbers. We still have to social distance. And then, truth be told, those individuals that's experiencing homelessness, they don't have the PPE. They don't have the mask. They don't have uh, hand sanitizer and things to their nature. So now we're trying to provide such things unto them so they can be able to come inside the church or come inside in a close community area to uh, get some of the substance that we have for them. Well, we all appreciate the work that you're doing. I'm seeing homelessness growing all across the city. Tents are everywhere. It's not just, you know, typical places, maybe by an expressway or some of the tent cities you're used to. It's all over downtown. Do you think the city leaders are doing enough to help the homeless right now? Honestly, uh, no. I think there needs to be more uh, provided, more uh, attention, awareness, and more engagement on dealing with those experiencing this uh, level of homelessness. And you said it right, Lauren. It is spread it rapidly. Uh, it used to be just in certain areas. Now they are embarking in places that we never thought they would, especially in the downtown area. And so uh, those that are community leaders, uh, such as myself and other uh, organizations or maybe churches, uh, we try to do the best that we possibly could do with the resources that we have to provide a need. And so we're going to continue to keep our boots on the concrete to let them know that, hey, we care about you. Uh, and especially during this time of uh, weather, this frigid weather, and we can only imagine um, how cold they are out there. Some don't have coats, some don't have gloves, some don't have hats. And so it's an absence of a lot of things. And so we're just trying to do the best that we possibly can and possibly connect with others that we can build a great, large initiative that we can supply them with a lot of uh, product that they need to um, possibly survive in this tough season that we are in. 
We support you, and we hope other people will come out and support your efforts for Love Day and beyond that to help the homeless. Pastor Cornelius Parks, thank you so much. And I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. And that'll do it for this week's Connected to Chicago. My thanks again to Ray Long of the Tribune, Craig Hines of Cranes, and Heather Sharon of WTTW. Also, thanks to Matt Mellon for his technical assistance. I'm Nick Gale, 890 WLS News. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.